If you open your Bibles to John chapter 10. Thank you so much for this morning. It's good to worship with you. I've been looking forward to this, and I'm so thankful I'm healthy enough to share the word with you this morning. Um, before we begin, I would uh, let's bow in prayer and ask for the Lord's help and blessing in this word. Father, I'm so thankful for this word. I'm thankful for the book of John and what it teaches. It teaches everything about you. I'm thankful for your life, your death, your resurrection, the second person of the Trinity, the, the Messiah, the author of life, the anointed one, uh, all the titles that you alone deserve. For we are dependent upon you and you alone and so I pray now this morning that you would come and minister us through your word and may your spirit come and help me as I speak. May your people be edified. And I thank you for the work of the gospel uh, within this church. Thank you for what it stands for. And I pray that you would continue that. Sanctify us continually through your word. May, us, may we love the word. Um, I pray that this morning would glorify your name, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. I want to start, so if you're already in John chapter 10, I want to start off by saying there was a missionary by the name of Adoniram Judson in the 18th century. Many of you have probably read his biography, and there's actually a, a, a short film about him and his wife uh, serving in Burma in the 18th century. Uh, he faced many hardships in Burma to take the gospel to the Indians, and he did not, was not able to come back for many decades. But on his return, he moved from the Congregationalist denomination to the Baptist denomination while he was over there. And coming back, he wanted to report the work. And so uh, after so many decades away, it was more than five years, it was many decades, 20 to 30 years uh, many of the congregants up, up along and down the eastern seaboard would say, Adoniram, tell us, of, tell us about your adventures. Give us the stories. You know, His first response to them was, no, I'm not going to be any part of that. What I'm going to do for you is just talk about Christ. And so that's my goal this morning. That's my aim as we open this text. Uh, that's my conviction in John's Gospel of chapter 10. From chapter 7... Uh, if you've read John, and, and you can take John, take five chapters a day for a month, and then go to the next five and the next five, and after four or five months, you have John swimming in your head. And so if you know about the previous chapters, from chapter 7 uh, until this text, the Jews have worked hard to kill Jesus, at least three times that we know of. Their hatred for him is so strong that they not only seek to kill him, but have rejected him. Declared he has a demon, and if anyone is to declare that Jesus, this Jesus is the Christ, that person was to be exiled, cast out of the synagogue. And then we read about a blind man in chapter 9, who Jesus heals. And this man believes in him. And this man does not believe in Jesus as just the great physical healer, but believes in him as the spiritual healer, as Lord and Savior. And according to chapter 9, verse 38, this man worships Jesus. He is worshiping Him, and he is healed physically and spiritually. And according to chapter 9 as well, he is thrown out of the synagogue. That's it, you're done. You're out for accepting Him as the Messiah. Now, these religious leaders that we find, especially in chapter 10, these are the religious leaders of Israel. These are the Pharisees who were there in chapter 8 and 9. They don't understand this figure of speech that Jesus uses here in chapter 10. They don't embrace His miraculous miracles and confess Jesus as the Son of Man. Instead, all they do is bring disdain, hatred, false accusations, and persecution to Jesus and to those that follow Him. These are the men that are the shepherds of Israel. These are the shepherds of Israel, but they are 
false shepherds of Israel. These are, as verse 8 describes in chapter 10, thieves and robbers. These men are, in some respect, the fierce wolves that Paul mentions about in Acts chapter 20 that do not care for the flock. So that's the backdrop. Let's start with verse 1. I want to read all the way to verse 16 to set the stage. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all out his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Now, hold your place in John chapter 10 and turn to Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel chapter 34. These men that we find here that have insulted, that have threatened, that have sought to kill Jesus, these are the shepherds of Israel. And this is interesting parallel passage in Ezekiel 34. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. Ezekiel 34, 1 through 6. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not, not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. The Lord in this passage sets His face against these shepherds. How, however, the Lord will not leave His sheep to defend for Himself. Because look at Ezekiel chapter 34 verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. Now, the question is, how will... God Almighty, do such a work as to bring in the scattered sheep. Well, we get that answer from Ezekiel 34 again in verse 23. He says, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. That's good news. This is the Messiah that he is speaking of here. Ezekiel is hearing this prophecy from his God about a future reality of a prince who will make atonement for his sheep. And 
Not just make atonement and lead them, but, but lead them in all righteousness. Not like what we find in chapter 10 of John of the false shepherds of Israel. Now, there is in this portion of Scripture that we find in verses 1-5, through five, we don't find a parable here in verses 1-5. through five. What we do find in these first five verses of John chapter 10 is we find a figure of speech, a word picture, a metaphor, if you will. Because he says that, John says that in verse 6. He clarifies this. This figure of speech Jesus used with them. They didn't understand what Jesus was saying to them in verses 1 through 5. Now, my question was as I was studying this, who is the them that he's referring to here? That John says, Jesus used with them this figure of speech. Who's there? Who is Jesus speaking to? Well, we know from the previous text that the Pharisees are definitely there. We know that the blind man that was healed is there. We know that his parents are possibly there. We know that the crowd that had gathered there over this was there. We know that his disciples are there. And we know that the scribes are there. But I believe it's the Pharisees that John is pointing to here that do not understand this word picture. So Jesus again speaks to them, and he, what he does is, it's, it's, it's beautiful to know, he expands verses 1 through 5, and to another 12 verses, which make up verses 7 through 18. But this time, Jesus is more direct with them. He explains it in detail to them. Who he is, from verses 1 through 5. He explains more in detail from verses 7 through 18. And he says this, and he says, I am the door of the sheep, verse 7. I am the door, verse 9. I am the good shepherd, verse 11. I am the good shepherd, verse 14. Jesus is pronouncing to these men that there is nothing false in his person or his ministry to the people of Israel. He's telling that to these Pharisees that were leaders of Israel. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. This is the one prophesied about in Ezekiel 34. I believe this is a fulfillment of Ezekiel 34. The Pharisees would have known their scriptures, right? They would have understood this, right? Now, when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd... This is the fourth I am statement made by Jesus. This along with all the other I am statements in Scripture affirm His deity. His deity is being confirmed here. He is. He is the theanthropic person. Which means that He embodies deity fully in human form. Divine and human together. He was in the form of God. The morphe, His inner nature of God. Philippians 2.6, you know that. He is the only and true deity bodily in front of these Pharisees. Colossians 2.9, For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you remember in two chapters previous, in John 8.58, where He says, I, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Do we realize what kind of statement that is that he's saying when he says that? I mean, there's this crowd listening to this. Before Abraham was, I am. You know what that's saying? It's saying, I am your God. I have created the heavens and the earth. All things visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers or authorities, all things were created through me and for me. That's what I am means. This is God in human form. This is the shepherd, the true shepherd. Now, you know, we, we need to be careful here in our doctrine because you know, I, I was just reading something several weeks ago about this. The belief going around. Jesus, now hear me, this is what I believe. Jesus did not begin to exist as a person when he was born. 
he did not begin to exist when he was born. Many believe that. That's heresy. That was one of the things I was asked in my ordination, that to, to, to talk about that, to prove that. He did not begin to exist when he was born. Jesus has always been the eternal person, the Son of God. He did not have the appearance of humanity. He was true humanity. The title, when you look at that, look at verse 14. He says, I am the good shepherd. You know, that title, as I was starting to look at that deeper, that's an affectionate expression. Affectionate. It defines, it shows us his nature of who he is. It defines his character, his attribute. This expression that he uses here, I am the good shepherd, is one of protection, it's one of love, and it's one of sacrifice. You know, and the Old Testament is full of this shepherd type imagery. I mean, a lot of us, I, you know, I grew up in a Christian home and I remember citing. Psalms 23, the Lord is my shepherd. The Old Testament's full of this shepherd imagery. Psalms 80, give ear, O shepherd of Israel, to come and save us. Micah 5.2, for out of you shall come forth a shepherd for the people of Israel. Now, my question was, was why all this shepherd type imagery? I want to know why. Well, in that culture, an Israelite would have known his own sheep. They would have known those sheep. He would have known them by name. Now, if you've ever been around sheep, sheep are vulnerable, helpless, dirty, wandering, smelly animals. I grew up as an MK, and there were sheep everywhere. And that's the truth. They are vulnerable, dirty animals. They need constant attention, constant care, constant leading, constant protection, and constant guidance. And so, this shepherd-type imagery that we find was used not for the benefit of the pagan, but for the benefit of God's people. It wasn't for the pagan. It was for His people. That's why... I said earlier in Psalms 80, verse 1, the writer pleads with God, who is called the shepherd of Israel, to hear them, to save them. Stir up your might to come and save us. He was begging his shepherd to do that. Those people in the writer of Psalm 80 saw their sin and guiltiness. They saw how despicable they were before this shepherd and begged the shepherd of Israel to save them. Because it's the only shepherd that can truly lead his sheep. You know, and the people of God, the people of God are his sheep who, as Isaiah says, have gone astray. Isaiah uses this imagery. Sheep must have tender, caring, and patient leadership by the shepherd. So, a little deeper. What does it mean when Jesus says in verse 14, I am the good shepherd? the good shepherd. Well, this word, it's very, very interesting. The Greek phrase has the meaning of being in a higher standard, a high, at, a, at a higher level than what was previous. Because it literally reads, shepherd, good one. There were many shepherds of Israel for the spiritual care of the people. Multitudes of shepherds for the spiritual care of Israel. And there were some good, but many more that were false and bad. But by contrast, this Greek phrase here, good shepherd that Jesus claims for himself, is free from the effects of sin. He is purer and finer than any shepherd before him. He has no defect that mars His goodness. He is more beautiful than anything excellent. The phrase good shepherd means that He is blameless. He is excellent. And nothing within His shepherding that is good is objectionable. Nothing. Not like what we see from these shepherds in John chapter 10. 
As the good shepherd, he does not just contribute to salvation. He is salvation, right? Praise God for that. The good shepherd is eternal life. He stands in stark contrast to all other shepherds, past, present, and future in the history of Israel and today. There are none like him. None like this shepherd. So, shepherds call their sheep to safety. They keep watch over them continually, calling them back out to feed again on green landscapes, only to protect them again, put them out to pasture, bring them back in from danger. And they do that over and over and over and over. Does this not happen? Does this not what the Good Shepherd does for us? Does not Christ bring you into His loving arms and tell all other thieves and robbers, this one's mine? He's mine. You can't have Him. Don't touch Him. He's mine. How could this be? That the Messiah would be so so loving and so tender to a person like me that was sinful to its nature, to its core, and yet He says to me, I give you Myself and I will bring you into My loving arms and no one will touch you. That's who Jesus is. That's the shepherd. There is no security like that. Now, the Pharisees would have known about Ezekiel 34. They would have known. They would have known about this passage. Why didn't the Pharisees see it? Why didn't the Pharisees know? Why didn't they relate and pull back their minds to the Old Testament writings? Well, there's one reason why they didn't see it. And it's, and it's into the next phrase. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. This phrase speaks of the sheep and shepherd relationship. There is no way to know the shepherd without his sacrificial substitutionary atonement. That's why they didn't see it. I know my own, and my own know me. He says in verse 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. His sacrificial substitutionary atonement is what, what secures that next phrase. I know my own, and my own know me. That's what he was sent to do. I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, there is no way for us as his sheep, to know the Father without Christ's imputed righteousness to us. There is no unity with Christ without the shame of the cross. That's what the Good Shepherd does that no other can do. And through all of that, through all of that, what He does, He doesn't stop there. He gives us His Spirit to indwell us. The Spirit does the work of regeneration. He gives us that Spirit. He opens the minds and illuminates the mind and the heart and soul to the things of God and to the person and work of Christ. And we are able to repent and believe and follow Him. There is, you know, this is a Trinitarian Gospel, dear brothers and sisters. This is a Trinitarian Gospel. There is no knowing the Trinity no knowing the triune God without true repentance. Now, the word know that he uses here in verse 14, if you look at that, I am the good shepherd, I know my own, and my own know me. That word has the sense of experiential knowledge, but it speaks deeper than that of just acknowledgement. Knowing someone or something for what it is, when you know something and you know someone, you see it for what it really is. But this phrase here goes beyond just acknowledging me, acknowledging someone. The phrase is put to its full understanding by the next phrase in verse 15. He says, I know my own and my own know me. And here it is. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. 
Now, my question was, is there any closer relationship, any closer relationship in the universe than the relationship between God the Father and God the Son? Is there? The knowing between the Father and the Son is a knowing of absolute, pure, ultimate, intimate union and intimate love. Now, this doctrine should drastically change our communion with God. Because this type of knowing that the Father is speaking about here is the knowing that He has handed over the kingdom of grace to His Son because He will do what is required to call His sheep to Himself. So that these sheep will know know Him in return. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. This is Christ displaying His glorious nature in the Trinity. And you and I get to taste that same union, that same love, that same union that is between the Father and the Son in the person of Christ. We know Him with the same relational love that He knows the Father. Can you believe that? How is it that this this theanthropic person, this second person of the Trinity, would be so blessed to see me come to faith in Him and give me the same relationship that He has with the Father? And now I can possess. How could this be that you and I could share in that union? I know I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. We know them with the same relational love that He knows His Father. That's beautiful. When I looked at that, I said, we, we have that same union with the Father through the person of Christ. Some might say, I don't know if I know Him. You know what you do? You go into the presence of God and you see His holiness and there you will see your sin. That's what we must do in our evangelism. We always start with the holiness of God in our evangelism so that people, so that the unbeliever, the non-Christian can see his sin in light of a holy God. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. John 3.35 All things have been handed over to me by my Father and no one knows the Son except the Father and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Matthew 11, 27. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know You, I know You. And these know that You have sent Me. I made known to them Your name and I will continue to make it known. The love with which You have loved Me may be in them and I in them. John 17. That's it. It's the same love. It's that same union that the Father and Son have. Now we have through the person of Christ. This Good Shepherd. What a statement. The last phrase in verse 15. Look at that phrase. He says, Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, then he says, very interesting, I lay down my life for the sheep. Now that's a statement and a half. This statement is the most self-sacrificial statement in all of Scripture. Jesus uses this phrase here, this statement, five times in these 12 verses. Five times. Verse 11, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 17, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Verse 18, I lay it down of my own accord. Verse 18 again, I have the authority to lay it down. Now, again, I ask myself a lot of questions as I'm studying. Why does Jesus speak of his sacrificial death so many times in this section? Why does he do it? I believe it's to show the Pharisees that he's not just another hired servant. He is not going to run away at the first sign of trouble. He won't do it. He's not like the shepherds in Ezekiel 34 that we read that fled at the first sign of danger. He's the only shepherd in all of Israel that will die for his sheep. He will not run. He must 
complete His Father's will. Jesus transitions from saying, in this text, He transitions from saying, um, the good shepherd lays down His life. Catch that. He transitions, the good shepherd lays down His life too. I lay down my life. Do you see that? He switches from teaching in the third person to the first person. He starts off in the third and then moves to the first. I lay it down. And there's no better confession for the Pharisees to hear than that. I lay it down. Now, the words lay down are present active. Jesus uses a present active verb here. Now this gets interesting. I love this part. Keep that in your thinking cap. This is a present active verb. I lay down. I am laying down. Peter uses the same words in chapter 13, verse 37. Lord, why cannot I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Peter uses future active verb. But here in this text, he uses present active. So, why is this phrase by Jesus, I lay down my life, present active? I believe it's present active because this Christ, this Word that has become flesh, this seventh shepherd that the Father has sent into the world to make atonement for sin, this good shepherd has set aside all heavenly rights. Remember, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. He is now, when he said this, he was now in the process setting aside giving up himself, of making himself no reputation to make propitiation for his sheep. He was doing that. In this passage, he was doing that now. That's Philippians 2 all over again. He is giving up himself for all the people that the Father has chosen before the foundation of the world. He did not lay down his life for the righteous, but for sinful men. He gives up his own life, his own privileges for a particular people that will respond, that will come to him. And that's the beauty of the gospel, isn't it? In our evangelism, in our efforts in the world. The responsibility is not on us. The only thing that we must be faithful to do is to preach. That's it. Preach the word. The results are in the hands of the Holy Spirit. That's so comforting as a missionary. So comforting as an evangelism. So comforting as witnesses of the gospel. So comforting for his church. He's in the process of giving himself up for all those that will respond. I believe that's why it's present active. Christ lays down his life voluntarily for his sheep. Now, the word used by Jesus here as we pick apart some of this, he says, I lay down my life, present active. But he says, my life. Now that caught me. I want to say, okay, what is, what is that? Let's look at that deeper. So I begin to look at that. The words that Jesus used, my life, or the, for the word life, uh, there's two Greek words in the New Testament for the word life. But he doesn't use that here. He didn't use that word here. He uses another word. The word used by Jesus here for my life denotes that he's not just speaking about his breath or the body. Not just the physical body. But it has to do with a lot more than that. What does it mean when Jesus said, I lay down my life? It has something to do with what is inward, is inner, is on the inside. What is it that hurts Jesus or suffers in Jesus to the point of death in the ministry of the cross? It's his soul. He uses the word for soul here. That, that shook me. I couldn't believe that. My life, it's the word for soul. Isaiah 53, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. 
yet he bore the sins of many. Christ's soul was put to the rack, if you will. Every part of his soul was tormented and scourged because he bore our sin. I like what one Scottish theologian says, he became unmanned. Jesus Christ became unmanned on the cross. Yes, he went through enormous physical pain that no man could endure. But his soul suffered to death because the Father looked upon him as if he were the worst sinner ever. Now hear me, Jesus Christ was not a sinner hanging on the cross. He was not. When every sin was placed upon Him, He was viewed by the Father as if He committed all sin without sin. That's the shepherd that we speak of. That's the beautiful doctrine of imputation. I receive His righteousness and He bears, He, he takes willingly my filth and my sin, my guiltiness. I receive His righteousness, His purity, totally cleared from the judgment bar of the Father. And He takes my sin and all those sheep that are scattered to the point where Christ's entire soul is in agony to death. What kind of massive shepherd are we dealing with here? I mean, who would even dare die for a good person, let alone a righteous person? That's Romans. This shepherd gave his soul to death for his sheep. No other shepherd is like this man. No other. Even as the Son of Man came to, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life, his soul, as a ransom for many. Verse 16. Look at that with me. He says, Jesus says to them, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Now, when I read that verse, it stood out to me that there are not going to be um, different pastures for different believers. There's not going to be different pastures for different believers. There is a uniting that will happen through Christ and by the Spirit for the purpose of having all sheep in one pasture. What does it mean when Jesus said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold? I grew up with an interpretation of that. And it was off. It was wrong. What does it mean when He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold? Well, we know that the sheep are the true believers. Don't we? The fold, the word fold He uses in this verse is, I believe is speaking of the Israelites time, the Jews. But the promise of Abraham extends outside of Israel. Jesus did not say, I will have other sheep. Did you catch that? Which would be you and I now, when he said it, for the future, it would be you and I. He didn't say, I will have other sheep. He says, I have other sheep. That points to the eternal Sovereign election of the Father. I was looking at that going, make sure this is right. I was looking at it and going, is this truly what it says? I have now. Is it in the present? And it was. It is. I have other believers out there that the Father gave me that are not here in this fold. I must get them. And the only way that will happen is for my body to be cursed upon a tree pour out my soul to death for them. Taking their place. John 17, verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you have given me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now, now let's, let's put on our thinking caps. Believing in Christ... Now, hear me. I want you to hear me really clearly. Believing in Christ does not make you his sheep. Did you hear that? Because he says, I have other sheep. 
being a part of the other sheep allows you and I to believe. We must really understand that the, the doctrine, the work of Christ and the responsibility of man can go south quickly here. And when I was looking at this, he has them now. I have. I have other sheep. That's beautiful. He knew your name before the foundation of the world. And he says, I must bring them. Now, some translations have lead. I think that's a great word, lead. I think that's probably better in this context for my, my opinion personally. My translation said bring, but I think lead is good. That phrase shows us the loving shepherd. A shepherd willing to lay down his soul for the multitudes of people that are still in darkness. When we, that's why, that's why it's not about the missionary. Never is. That's why it's not about us. We preach what the good shepherd did. We are messengers. That's all we do. We message. We have a message that we herald. We carry it to people everywhere so that they too can taste and see this shepherd. I must lead them, he says, I must lead them from where they are and lead them to new pastures. To new pastures. Now, what does that remind you of in Psalms? When you, when, when you hear, I must lead them, does it pull up Psalms 23 verse 2? He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name. There are other people who will hear the gospel outside of Israel and they will be saved from their sin and be led by Him. That's you and I. That's the Koroi people. That's every tribe, language, tongue, and nation. It's beautiful. Now, question. Is this bringing that He talks about here not done through our mouths as servants? I mean, how are people to hear? How beautiful are those that bring, beautiful are the feet of those that bring the good news? It's done by us as his sheep. Now, you, you and I will talk about what we love. We will. We talk about what we love and what we cherish. Do you love Christ and his gospel? Do I love Christ and His Gospel to the point that we will suffer whatever we must in order for those other sheep to come to Him? The Word of God is alive. It's active. It, there are other sheep out there that will respond to His Word according to this text. They will come and He will lead them. I mean, we are assured of victory. That should be the driving force in our evangelism and in our efforts for the gospel. We are his representatives. He says in verse 3, the sheep hear his voice and he calls out his own sheep by name and leads them out. They didn't get that. They didn't understand that when he said that. God's means are the same today as they were for the apostles and for Peter. And it's very simple, brothers and sisters. Preach the gospel. That's all. That's sufficient. Many men and women try different methods, different programs, and different ways to minister, and the only bottom line solution is very simple. Preach the Word. That's it. That's what we're called to do as His sheep. And those other sheep will respond. And they will... It's an irresistible grace, right? And that's so comforting. So comforting on the field. And it should be comforting for everyone that ministers. Every detail, work, every detail, every work of our salvation is brought to light. Now hear me. They will respond. And remember, this is a Trinitarian gospel. They will respond to the power of the Holy Spirit. But every detail and every work of our salvation is brought to light in the Father's love through the Son's person and work and through the Spirit's regenerative work. That's why it's vital. 
for us as his sheep to have a Trinitarian lens to everything we do in Scripture. Everything we read, everything we live for, it's all through a Trinitarian lens. That's why I love John Owen so much. He had a Trinitarian lens when it came to Scripture. I mean, think about it. To see the Father's love for us, we look at His Son. And how can we know this Son that did the will of the Father? Through the powerful work of the Spirit. And the Spirit will, and He always will glorify the Son and draw us to Him. The Spirit will never, ever, ever dishonor the Son or the Father. Never. And all those sheep that He speaks of in this passage, which is you and I and others, they will listen to His voice. They will listen. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. And you know what he says in verse 28 of Acts? They will listen. They will listen. They will listen. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. We are his witnesses to the people still in sin that do not know Christ. And all that many will be sent. That's why I believe we need to be praying Luke 10. When is the last time that we prayed Luke 10? Individually, corporately. I have to confess that I wasn't praying that even as a missionary. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. This is, this is a comfort for us. That all those that hear the gospel and respond will listen. And they hear through you and I. They hear through us. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through, here's what he says, will believe in me through their word. That's you and I in the world. All right, I'm going to close this up here. So, last phrase. He says in verse 16. So he'll lead them. They will listen. And then he says, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. Does that sound like Ezekiel? One flock, one shepherd. Now, a grave mistake, I think, on our part would be to view uh, the Jews and Gentiles as two flocks. That would become one. In verse 16, the emphasis is not on the word this when he says this fold. So you wouldn't read it like this fold, but you would read it like this fold. The emphasis is not on the word this. The Jews were the first to hear, but there are other sheep within that fold that will come to the shepherd. They will be one under one mighty shepherd. Christ. Christ. There is no Jew or Greek. There is no slave or free. There is no male or female. For, all, for you are all one in Christ. For He Himself is our peace, which has made us both one and broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility. There's one flock and one shepherd. So that explains who we are in Christ. This phrase. We are one. We are family. We are brothers and sisters. We have one Father. We have one Lord. We have one Spirit. There is no division among Christ's flock because of Christ laying down Himself. Many would seek to disrupt that today. Many would. But according to Scripture, we are one through His death. The brutal death on the tree was of His own making. Did you know that? You know that. You get great teaching here. The br- this brutal death was of His own making. Jesus Christ was not a helpless man hanging on the cross. The Jews did not have ultimate authority over Him. Pilate and Herod did not have ultimate authority over him. The Gentiles did not have ultimate authority over him. The men sent to arrest him, remember in the garden, what did they do? They fell backwards at his authority. Jesus said to Pilate in the Scriptures, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. 
Nobody had ultimate authority over him. It was of his own making. That's Acts chapter 4. So a couple questions. Do we realize that the great commission that we have as sons and daughters is still valid for us today? Humans are quick, just as that quote this morning, humans are quick to herald a message from an earthly president. Ambassadors go. People all over Indonesia with their president, they herald a message. Princes of Saudi Arabia, prime ministers of England, they herald messages for these men and women. Are we so captivated by this shepherd as we see in these few verses in chapter 10 that we are willing to lay down our lives in order to bring the scattered sheep among the nations? Jesus was obedient to the Father's will to the end to bring those scattered sheep across the world to Himself and lead them in all righteousness. So, are we in a place in our Christian life? Are we in a place in our Christian life where we still see such beauty in the person and work of this shepherd that we will do whatever He asks in order to see people come to faith in Him? I have to think hard about that one, even for myself. One guy, one writer, one theologian said, what is it that you think about when there is nothing else to think about? Is he the fulfillment of our souls that our lives display his gospel and display it to those without Christ? I want to close this text by reading... um, Hebrews chapter 13 verse 20 and just when you listen to it you can kind of hear John in it John 10 the writer of Hebrews said now may the God of peace who brought you again from the dead of our Lord Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us which is pleasing in his sight Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for this text in John and what it teaches me. And I pray that you would continue illuminating our minds through your word by the Spirit. Thank you for this good shepherd. Thank you for his life, his death, and his resurrection. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. just want to remind you about uh, our invitation tonight. I made the comment earlier that uh, Paul's trip here was way overdue. That's not right, of course. It's according to God's good timing that he's here, and we rejoice in that. But in God's providence, we don't know when he'll be back. And if you'd like to spend a little more personal time with Paul, you're invited to come to our, our home tonight between 6.30 and 8.30. We'll just have an informal time of visiting, and you can ask him questions, but we want to extend that invitation to you. So uh, Paul will now lead us in our closing benediction. Brothers and sisters, I want to read for you 2 Corinthians 13, the final greetings from Paul. He says, finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace be with you All greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Have a blessed Lord's Day.